2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-host, Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff is currently deeply immersed in the uh, journal put out by uh, our guest today, who is Sarah Nicole Prickett. The journal is Adult Magazine. It's a great looking magazine. We have, we have lost Evan to yeah. adults. <laughs> I've never seen Evan so interested so in my life. <laughs> uh, adult is a journal of contemporary erotics. Um, so I got to talk to Sarah about uh, starting that up from scratch. Yeah, as you've well been looking as, to do this one for a while. Yeah, well, I've wanted to talk to her for a while. And um, she also talked about her own writing career, which is quite interesting. So check that out. Evan, how are you enjoying that over there? I, I'm I'm just leafing through it. I'm not even paying attention to what you're saying. Um, that's the first time you can, you can take that home. You can take that home with you. <laughs> All right, fine. That's a loner. Uh, we have a sponsor this week, you guys. Hey, it's a tiny letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It's done by the good people at Mailchimp. We thank them as always for their sponsorship. And a programming note. Next week we're going to be off uh, for the Fourth of July, so we are going to be uh, we'll we'll send an old episode, a favorite, uh, back down the pipe, uh, and then we'll be back with a new one the week after the Fourth of July. Hey, here's Aaron with Sarah Nicole Prickett. Welcome. Is your name a three name name, or is there like a is it a dash name? It's a tripartite. Tripartite. Okay. <laughs> My mother liked the name Sarah and the name Nicole, and she liked them together. My dad only liked the name Sarah, but my mom was one of seven children. Yes. So uh, they couldn't afford middle names, and she was very keen for me to have one that I could use if I so chose. For a long time, it was just Sarah because I thought Sarah Nicole was a bit trashy, but then I embraced the, the trashiness of it. Okay, I thought I was worried that it was maybe like a Canadian convention that I wasn't familiar with. You are Canadian? I am Canadian. I think you may be our first Canadian guest. No. I don't know. There may be some closeted Canadians who didn't bring it up, but as far as I know, you're our first <laughs> Canadian guest. Um, I was reading through um, a series of pieces you've written in over like the last, I'd say, three years. And I was caught by one detail, which you said um, I had never been on a plane until I was 23. So let's talk about the period of your life before you went on a plane. What what were you doing during this zero to 23 non-flying period? <laughs> um, well, I was, you know, constructing my own wings out yeah. of dollar store feathers and bits of plastic and glitter. No, I was just not rich enough to fly on a plane. Um I grew up, uh, you know, in London, Ontario, which is two hours away from the only city you've ever heard of in Canada, that being Toronto. And, you know, our family drove to Florida. We'll talk Whoa. about Florida later. I have a long-standing fascination. Yeah. Uh, 
But, you know, we would drive on road trips. We would go to mega churches in Michigan and in Oklahoma because my family was very religious. Um, And partly because they were religious and my mom stayed home and only my dad worked and we gave a lot of money to the church, we didn't really have anything left to spend on things like flights, Um, you know, unless it was absolutely necessary for missionary work, and that's not me being facetious. So then I went to university in London, Ontario, where both my parents had gone to university, dropped out, went to Toronto for journalism school, dropped out again, and then started working in fashion magazines. What led you to drop out of both of those schools? Um, Money, impatience. You know, it's not expensive to go to school in Canada, but I still couldn't after a while afford it. Mm-hmm. And I also was not ever someone who really thrived in a school environment. Um, I don't know, maybe it was bad socialization. I was homeschooled till the eighth grade. And what was that? What was that like? What was it like? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, do you have a mother? Uh, yes, she's okay. a, I have a Jewish mother. Actually. Okay, so you just imagine that I you admit, wake up, horrific you eat breakfast with your me. mother, yeah. you learn history from your mother, you learn geography from your mother, you know, you wash dishes under your mother's tutelage, then you play the piano with your mother standing there, right? That's yeah. what homeschooling is. Hi, Mom. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I got into fashion because partly because I wanted to travel. Uh-huh. Um There's money in fashion magazines and in the glossier women's magazines. Magazines were contraband. So what what kind of magazines attracted you? So, I mean, they they were all full of information that I was not supposed to be receiving. So even a magazine like Seventeen that gave you some sort of tongue-tripping techniques, uh, I wasn't allowed to read that. Or a fashion magazine that taught women how to dress provocatively. I would have to keep them in my high school locker, and eventually, I don't know, my mom must have suspected, uh, she must have looked at me one day over the dinner table and thought, like, there's a girl who knows something about how to pass a note in a class or flirt with a boy or something you would learn from one of these magazines because she came to my school in the middle of the day and announced and asked someone at the front office where my locker was and like emptied everything into an enormous black trash bag took me home emptied it on the floor and questioned me about every single item when you um when you made your way to the city eventually um you had these experiences what i mean what what were your ambitions uh, arriving uh, arriving in toronto i wanted to go to journalism school and learn how to make money at the only thing I was good at. We had, journalism school does not get a great rap on this show, despite the fact that we've had several journalism school sponsors. So I'm I'm hoping that eventually someone's going to come on the show and be like, journalism school is awesome. Oh. You're not that person. I'm not. No. <laughs> <laughs> we listen to the show. There's a lot of people who've considered going to journalism school. So I, I'm, it's, I'm right. interested in what was it like actually trying going to journalism school and sort of getting the professional... Uh, take on this stuff? I wanted to write maybe fiction, maybe personal essays, but I knew that I had to make money, so I thought, okay, like, I'll do something more servicey, something glossy. I didn't yeah. know exactly. Uh, certainly, I never saw myself as a truth teller, and I don't think I would have ever used the word storyteller either, mm-hmm. and as a result, I didn't fit in so much with the very 
keen, A-type, homework-doing, um, West Wing-watching, journalism student populace. I liked imagistic language. Um, I didn't like interviewing or speaking to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a problem in journalism school. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, did you like, did you think like when, when you went in, did you just sort of go in blind thinking like, yeah, people are going to like love this sort of like stream of consciousness, no research, no interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, what it was is that I didn't know exactly who I was. And also I thought I would learn to like things more than I did. I mean, and it's not true, of course, that I categorically dislike interviewing people. I only mean that I didn't do so well at streeters, for example. I could never understand why we should stop four totally random people to ask them what they thought about the election of such and such minister to such and such ministry. That was part of the, the curriculum of journalism school was kind of these uh, uh, bread and butter kind of exercises like that. Right. What was the experience of working at like uh, like uh, fashion glossies like? I liked it a lot. I really liked were you, my what editor. What were you doing for for them? I interned. Mm. I was the assistant to uh, the features editor at a magazine called Fashion, uh, about fashion in Canada. So she was great. She had done her time in alternative weeklies and so on, and she edited a lot of the culture pieces for the magazine. Uh-huh. So I learned a lot from her, and we got along well, and I stayed there um, I was supposed to only intern for three months, but they were giving me paying writing work for the magazine. So I kind of stayed on as an unpaid assistant, but a paid writer because their glossy rates were so much more than I had expected to make for writing. I didn't expect to right away make a dollar a word, obviously. Um, and during my time there, I was also offered work at a local alternative weekly that now exists as uh, an unalternative weekly. And I wrote for, you know, national newspapers, um, some international blogs, you know, the usual mix. I think early on, the one thing that I always did right was diversify the portfolio, so to speak. How did you successfully make contact with editors at each of these places where you were getting assignments? Usually my editors would recommend me to other editors Uh or someone would read something I had written. And that's still the way it is. Um... I'm not so good at the old school networking style of being in the world. Um, the only thing that I like is physically writing. I like making the marks on paper or setting the type on screen. I like when I'm in something and it's going well. I mean, really, that's the only time that I feel completely, completely alive and purposeful and like, <laughs> you know. Like, I really want to be here when I'm in the middle of writing or when I'm in the middle of editing or when I'm moving around the pieces that make the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really that physical act of work that I love. And everything that comes before it, everything that comes after it, the writing or the editing, uh, everything that makes the work possible, I sort of bradily resent. And that includes tweeting about my articles Twitter feels now like a joyless task, and I don't know very much still about being a writer in 
the professional sense of the word. I feel uh-huh. like professionally I fuck up all the time, but I do the actual work well enough that I'm asked to keep doing it. And usually I'm not asked at um, an N plus one party. God bless N plus one. You wrote um, in N plus one recently uh, about Elliot Rogers, um, but less specifically about Elliot Rogers than actually about the writings of Elliot Rogers, uh, his uh, manifesto, I guess you would say. Is that what you, what you call that? He called it a story. Okay. It was titled, it had the word story in the title, but also toward the end, he said something like, my story. And it struck me reading that, that he did have some impulse or wish to fictionalize as anybody with such horrifying thoughts inside themselves would. And I wondered a little bit amorally (laughs) if his failure to make this great fiction is what turned it into this sickening reality. I don't know. I know that you do Mm -hmm. paid work and you... Um, you know, you pay your rent to a certain extent from freelance gigs. And then it strikes me that a piece about Elliot Rogers's writings is probably like in a different bucket for you as Mm -hmm. a piece. And this is not necessarily the most saleable um, uh, form of writing. So it's in the vomit bucket. But I mean that in the way that like, it's something that I have to have to get out of me. When you set off and you're doing something like this and it's for the vomit bucket rather mm-hmm. than the for sale bucket, um, how do you how do you go about organizing a piece like that? Like you you sat down and you're like, I'm going to write this um, piece about Elliot Rogers' extremely long uh, writings. <laughs> What's the first step to building that into something that you can publish? Right. I'll go back a little bit in time. I was on the plane back from California and I had been in Desert Hot Springs with my now husband, Jesse, and we didn't bring phones or laptops or anything. So I cleared a big space in my mind. I also read a lot of noir fiction, um, and, and California is the perfect setting for it. And then we get on the plane and come back and I see tweets about Elliot Roger. And I read enough of it to know that I would have to do something about it. And I just, I don't know, I spent three days trying to read the manifesto. It was very, very difficult, at least for me. And then, and during this time, I also was making sure to not read anybody's pieces, no opinion pieces, no reaction pieces, nothing. Interesting. I barely, like I even tweets, I'm very good at shutting things out when I have to. Um, And... As callow as this analogy is, it's the same as when I'm reviewing a film like Nymphomaniac. I don't read anybody, not a word that anyone has to say about it, unless, of course, it comes up in conversation or on Twitter, but I really, really avoid it. Not because I think my thoughts are pure, but maybe out of some, like, I don't know, I'm terrified that I'm going to unintentionally plagiarize, I think. Um, I'm worried about my reactionary impulse, like my contrarian sort of nature that will make me disagree with something too many people are saying, right? Yeah. And I just want to, oh, I don't know, I guess pure is a little bit of the aim, although I hate the notion of purity in so many ways. Um, you strike me as someone who's like pretty like aware of what's going on, yeah. and like you strike me as someone who probably otherwise would have read a lot of things on this topic. Otherwise I would. Okay. Otherwise I read almost everything, except I don't read a lot of gossip. But I read a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. I'm not naturally the most organized. And usually, 
I feel that my writing is less like a flowchart than like, you know, a constellation. So it's like just, you know, drawing some bullshit stick figure among the truly disconnected points yeah. <laughs> in the sky. Um, this required some cue cards, though, because it was enormous. Yeah. Um, and because I could easily have written three or four times as much. I kind of knew exactly what I needed to find. I just went on the internet only to find those things and kind of came back to my little cave and wrote everything by hand. So you are now an editor yourself. So at what point did you um, say, I want to have my own magazine? This is, I want to build something brand new. When I was in journalism school and we had to do a project on the kind of magazine that we would want to work for someday, and I couldn't decide what that would be, I think, and also I didn't know enough about magazines probably. You know, I think the the range they gave us was fairly limited. You know, we were looking at like mainstream commercial titles and so on. Um, but yeah, when I was... 21, 22, and I was in journalism school and then not in journalism school and then in fashion, but also feeling like an outsider in fashion. Um, my best friend Adrian and I would always talk about how we wanted to do uh, a unisex fashion magazine and a fashion magazine with politics that would look into the realities of the industry, factories, retail, all the way to the runway, the showroom, and then to the backs of men and women and so on on the street. Mm. I might be aggrandizing the plan, you know, from my mature perspective. I don't know if I was so political or wise at the time, but the magazine that I wanted does sort of exist now, although often not in print form. Like, the market for, you know, very smart fashion consumer stuff is fairly saturated right. from, you know, Bond magazine in Sweden, I think, to The Cut in New York. Um, so by the time I was actually ready to make a magazine, that was not an arena that anyone really needed me to be a player in. Whereas, and I had stopped writing about fashion primarily. Whereas sex actually is. I was just, um, I was uh -huh. doing some work. We have like a new app coming out. And I was trying to make a like a sex section in it, and I was finding that there was really not enough to fill that. Um, and that's something we've had doing long form when we do our year end wrap up. We always have a discussion if we're going to have like a best sex writing of the year. And a lot of times it's like, well, we've only got like ten candidates, so it's not really the best. It would be like the only. Um, <laughs> so uh, adult. Um, for Why people do who you have, think that is? Well, I, I, that's what I want to get into because you're like the person who would know. I'm just like the – I'm the consumer. So, But I think the consumer knows. Well, so for people who haven't seen Adult, okay. um, there's one issue out – came out this fall. Uh-huh. Um, it's a uh, – it's not glossy. It's a matte, um, a pretty nice, thick, beautifully printed matte magazine. And you are now also running a website which updates a few times a week um, with sort of complimentary stuff. Mm-hmm. For for people at home who haven't seen it, it looks like the like um when you go into like a really like cool bookstore and they've got like kind of like the the like beautiful like like journals table. It, it looks very at home in there, but it is um in its content also like edging towards like uh, a different section of the uh, the magazine store. Um, and you bill it as a a magazine of contemporary erotics. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> what what are erotics? 
<laughs> when in my notes it says three times what are erotics what are <laughs> what is erotics yeah i mean i hate hate the word erotica you know it's like my moist what are some words people hate it makes me think of electronica Oh, that's another. It's '90s, right? Yeah, that's every, uh, the '90s were about putting ICA at the end of various things. I know, I know. It just makes you think about a butterfly tattoo on the ankle. Yeah. I can't hack it. So, um, yeah, erotic sounds cleaner and slightly more intellectual, I suppose. Although that's not a huge priority for me. I also liked how it sounds. Um, I like the plural. You know, it's not just you know the erotic mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, any more than there's like feminism singular or anything like that. Well, and the so, part that's notable about the tagline is that you're saying contemporary erotics, mm-hmm. which ma- instantly makes me think it's like, it's not your grandfather's erotics. I know. Although when you look at the first issue, it's pretty vintage. It <laughs> is vintage, but it's it doesn't look like, like the sex magazines of my youth. Um, ha- there's a various, there's a real aesthetic to um, like '90s sex magazines, and there's a there's a there's a, there's a lot of like graphic connotations that that go along with it, and this is sort of in that like in between like realm where it could be like the design of this magazine could be like some magazine called like you know like the Gentleman or something like that, you know, like those kind of like international magazines uh-huh. that you can get at newsstands uh-huh. that cost like twenty seven dollars, so. Right away, it's, it has, like, contradictions, which I find very compelling. And I'm wondering, sort of, when you started coming up with the idea of the magazine, what what kind of a, a package were you trying to put together? The first issue is a very soft pitch. I do want it to be more graphic, uh-huh. um, less 70s, less white, you know? Um, the second issue already looks quite different. Because Berkeley and I, the two women out of the four who started it, are the ones calling the shots. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there's still not money shots, but we want it to be I, sexier, mm-hmm. what I think is sexier, than the first issue. Which isn't to say that the first issue isn't totally beautiful. And there's, um, you know, there's one shoot in it especially that I'm always proud of, which is the Kava Gorna shoot of people we know just, like, masturbating in their bedrooms uh-huh. paired with... Harry Matthews little funny descriptions of masturbatory scenarios with different protagonists mm-hmm. and my friend Alex Malakow another Canadian who writes and works at Hazlitt uh, she wrote those and that really sums up for me what we're trying to do I grew up reading much more than watching pornography mm-hmm. Um, again, because of the <laughs> strictures of my adolescence, I did not really have access to internet or to cable TV porn, but I was allowed to go to the library and I would sneak into the filthy paperback section. Um, and words did something to me then before I knew what they meant. I remember vivid descriptions of butt plugs and I had no idea what this was or like anal um, sex, like douching, all mm-hmm. of these things that I don't know. The violence of those words was somehow inscribed, even though the actual definition was not. Um, And I've had that response to language ever since I was very young, and it shapes my writing and my editing in that I am much more of a sensory writer than a precision writer. And I find 
precision writing is often wonderful in our magazine and on the website. We do stuff that is, yeah, more like, more sensory, sometimes extra sensory, um, imagistic often, Mm. um, a lot of sort of... um, feminine sort of écriture, you know, fragmenty diary type things like my friend Fiona's diary from Berlin. Um, because I like writing that moves you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think when you asked me, like, Ew. why isn't there more sex? <laughs> I wish I didn't Why there isn't more uh, <laughs> sex writing out there? I think the thing is, like, when you were like, yeah, more like graphic f- shoots, I was like, okay, I get that. I understand what you're talking about. I think a lot of people, and my, I'd include myself in this group, when when you ha- hear sex writing, you don't really know what that is. Like it's not like a clearly defined genre the way that uh, sports writing or Nor business should writing. It be. Yeah, I so, mean, there's writing about sex, but then there's sexy writing about almost anything. Okay, so that's interesting. There's a difference between sex writing and sexy writing. Uh huh. And I would argue that this is more in the sexy writing camp. What? How do you? I mean, how do you describe that vision to someone who wants to write? Like, hey, I really want to write for adult. What should I pitch to you? What like what do you what are you looking for? How do you how do you communicate that vision to a writer? Online we take more pitches. In the print magazine, it's almost entirely commissioned. We should talk about the Florida piece by Joe Coscarelli. Absolutely, yes. Which um, is the sort of the uh, the feature from this this one is a piece right. by Joe Coscarelli. Yeah. Um so in the in the case of that piece, how did that piece come in? So I uh, was always fascinated with the Florida outside of Disneyland or, or Disney World. Um, I was not even allowed to go to those places as a child, so uh, it was a necessary fascination with kind of like the swampy, seedy parts of Florida. And because of the Trayvon Martin murder and because of um, bath salts and certain Twitter feeds inspired by bath salts, I guess, like Florida man, Florida woman. I felt like I was seeing it in the headlines all the time, but I wanted to get a piece of the land underneath, and I knew I needed a Florida-born writer to do that. Durga Chubos recommended Joe Coscarelli, and I went to a bar with him and said, okay, I want you to write a lot about Florida. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I said, you know, you're from there. Tell me what it's like. Tell me what you're interested in. Spring Breakers was also coming out. Right. Um, but I wanted to do a piece that would sort of undo the Florida trend. Mm-hmm. And Joe was perfect for it. He understood right away when I said, like, don't make it a personal narrative, like a like a boy road trip, finds himself at the end kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, I didn't want it to be beatsy at all. I wanted it to be contemporary, but not in the contemporary way of what I call, uh, like, space alien anthropology. You know, like, describing from a great often academic distance what something looks like way down where people live as if they were explaining it to you know creatures from outer space and I don't like too much uh, sociology especially in this magazine because uh, you know the end of that famous Sontag essay when she's like I don't want 
uh, a hermeneutics of experience. I want an erotics. And I don't want an analytics of experience either, Mm -hmm. which is so much the unfortunate, dull way things are going in journalism now. Um, And so Joe was really good at doing a piece that was anti-analytic. Were you concerned, I mean, that someone's going to pick this up and go, there's this great feature in here, but it was um, it it wasn't very it did not contain uh, many erotics. Um, <laughs> it's not like it's not the feature that you would expect out of like the like new independent sex magazine. Yeah. It doesn't like I'm interested in as you sort of built this vision for the magazine where the parameters were like how do you how do you say this is adult and this is not adult I don't know I have to do it for longer before yeah. I can say that with anything near certainty and even then you know I'm chronically indecisive <laughs> did you did you commission things that didn't end up in in the final version I did not oh, but okay. Noah my co-founder did Oh, okay. And why do a print magazine um, right now? Like what it, what attracts you to putting your energy into having this printed and distributed and, and sort of designed and laid out rather than doing something like this on the web? In large part, it's the design and layout. Mm-hmm. You can still make a print magazine more beautiful and fluid often than you can on the web. The way that stories move one to the next in a print magazine is not so possible online. Mm-hmm. We really designed it off the grid. We made it feel, I think, like I described it before, and I can't think of a better way to describe it now, as like overripe fruits bursting. The design is so much in a time when a lot of magazines are really minimal in ways that sometimes, and I think wrongly, echo the internet. I want the internet to be more like the internet and print to be more like print. That's not a hard, fast rule. Nothing is. And it's funny because our website actually kind of looks like print. It has the color scheme. But we're also in beta, and who knows exactly what we'll do. To do something in print last year felt significant, especially because there was so much being found out about surveillance. And it felt necessary. Like, not just because oh, like the government is tracking your porn habits or something like that. What? They're not, okay. I mean, they are, but I don't think they're so, they're not interested, okay. Uh, But it felt like sort of impossible to read on the internet for pleasure anymore, at least for me. I felt like anything I read, I had to prove I was reading, which is an awful, awful feeling that nobody should have, Uh whether you're on Twitter or not. And I wanted to do a magazine that was not like, um, there was not a display item. You wouldn't stop reading in the middle of it to tweet something from it. You wouldn't put it on your coffee table to brag about it. You wouldn't carry it on the subway because it's too heavy. It would be, I wanted a magazine, and I've said this, and it's still true, that you would take to bed with you. Mm-hmm. I wanted like a bedside magazine. A lot of the magazines that I love are like desktop magazines, coffee table, subway, all this stuff, right? And I wanted an American magazine. Uh, I didn't want to do the international downtown demographic where Soho and Tokyo and Melbourne and Toronto, everything sort of seems alike because it is demographically alike. I wanted something that went um, deeper versus broad. But that, too, we're still figuring out. And if any writers who are not from New York are listening, like just American writers who live in any other city, yeah. 
please email me. <laughs> um, when you do something like that and you move off the internet, how do you how do you build an audience for something like this? I mean, if you start a website, you say, oh, come on, like follow me on Twitter, or, you know, mm-hmm. get on my RSS mm-hmm. reader. And it strikes me as more difficult when you're starting from scratch to build something like this. It is more difficult. I prize difficulties sometimes. I think that things that take longer to make might also last longer. The hope with a magazine is that, speaking of space aliens, <laughs> <laughs> but now bending them to my purposes, yeah. uh, then a magazine is like a time capsule. Um, but I don't want it to explain the present. Um, I don't know. I sort of want to mystify it a little bit. That's, I think, what good erotics do. I mean, to analyze sex is to make it unsexy completely. Everyone sort of knows this. And the way I do things is instinctual and sort of blood-driven. From when you sort of, when you when this w- went from being an idea to something that was real, what was the most surprising thing? I mean, what went differently than, than you expected um, about this project? Everything goes wrong. Of course it does. What was the worst thing that went wrong? Probably the delays in shipping the first issue from where we had it printed to us and then also when we mailed the issues that people ordered online people who didn't live in cities where the bookstores were carrying it um, a lot of those issues sort of disappeared and that was hellish to deal with so yeah (laughs) there were a lot of decisions that I think I made too hastily or with the wrong priority Um, you know that priority being expense yeah, you pay, you pay more to have things done properly. If this, you know, if this is sort of the the primary vision for the magazine, what is the role of the website? You know, I think a lot of like uh, longtime print magazines have a sort of a second class citizen, but you you're actually really updating the website pretty frequently, mm-hmm. putting a lot of emphasis on it. Do you work on both sides sort of equally or Yes, I spend probably as much time right now overseeing the web stuff as I do, but that's because I'm finished editing everything mm-hmm. for the second issue. For the second issue. Um, how often does, how long is the spacing between the issues? This first one, I think, works out to be six months six after. Months. Okay, we six wanted months. to do it triannual, um, but that's not working out so far. <laughs> Keep you posted. Uh, yeah, the website, it's as important to me. It fulfills hopefully quite a different function, which is to be timelier, but not reactionary, but at the same time reactive, like responsive, I mean. Um, You can tell immediately what people like and want more of. And how do you, um, like if someone hasn't written erotically before, how do you evaluate? I mean, when someone's like going to write a, uh, you know, a feature for the New Yorker, uh-huh. you'd be like, oh, well, you know, what are the, what are those other stuff they've published? When someone is when this is sort of uncharted terrain for someone, how do you evaluate if someone's mm-hmm. going to give you that mystical vibe? We don't know usually. Yeah. Um, the sexier stuff, like the bedtime stories, yeah. those usually come in on spec. Uh, the best one that I can think of right now is by Larissa Pham, and it's about. Uh, a week she spent um, in an intense brief intense because it was brief affair with this guy and she was on her period the whole time so 
blood just soaks through everything in the story. And it sounds so terrible. When Rayanne told me that someone was going to write this, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? You know what I mean? It's like, it just sounds like mm, making a chandelier out of tampons. But it was great. And I can't explain exactly why it was great. But she has a command of her own vulnerability that is really remarkable. Um, There's another story in that section by Brad Phillips, this weirdo artist from Canada, and everyone reading it feels, you know, the pink rising to their cheeks and they don't know why. It's about being an ass man and how his babysitter like possibly abused him, but definitely set him up for life to appreciate the back curves of a woman. I mean, I can't really get into it on air, but people just really responded to that. despite or because of its apparent like kind of callous borderline sexism like I think shame and feeling ashamed to be reading something is a big part of what gets people off um a lot of the other writing on the site when it's about sex is not what I would call writing erotically you know it's like Let's talk about like an erotic film, yeah. um, but that's done in a more conventional—not conventional, but you know, restrained, you know, elegant literary kind of style. Right. Like if Jerga is the one writing that, it's going to be this beautiful, um, kind of zoomed in look at like the clothes, the textures, and so on. That was an experience I had when I was reading the issue. Was like. Okay, here's a story that's like a you know a fairly straightforward profile of uh, David Cronenberg, and here's another story. Which it's is this fiction or uh, is this does fiction or nonfiction really apply to this? It's just sort of like a like erotic stream of conscious, and, I, and I'm wondering like <laughs> how do you lay out um, an issue when some of it is kind of traditional magazine work and some of it is a little bit more uncharted water like that. We try to not repeat a form in the print magazine. So if you look at this one, there are the three profiles of film directors. So those are alike Mm -hmm. in length and in format. But, you know, there's the the feminine creature that we talked about before. That's the kind of like erotic diary. And then there's, you know, there's a trip to a sex toy factory that should be straight ahead short reportage, but is kind of written like more short fiction and there's actual short fiction and then there's longer short fiction and what else is there but nothing no two things it's not like a magazine where it's like okay half interviews half you can't stay in the same groove kind of from piece to piece no and also it makes the design more interesting Uh, that every story is sui generis in in its design it's not like a template it's not you know so the experience of moving through it is great you feel like the landscape's always changing out of your window you're a bit unique um among people who've been on this show in that um you have kind of a day job um which is doing piece freelance pieces and you have like a sort of a passion project with this magazine and my um, instinct is that b- both of those are not particularly high-paid jobs. Do you do you have like a third <laughs> profession that I'm unaware of, or how? I mean, how does this work out for you as a career? No, but you've just reminded me that I have to email back someone about copywriting, which is the one thing I do that is not public. 
Uh-huh. The only thing that I do that doesn't have my name on it is sometimes I'll copyright. Okay. And I should be doing more of that now because things are financially. Mm, so, yeah, I mean, it's very stupid. I mean, well, it's, let's, it, without calling it stupid, I mean, how, like, how, it's, it how is deep stupid. into this it's adult hole that I can you go? Work, you know, that I'll spend an entire week working on an M plus one piece um, out of out of an urgency that will never translate into, uh, you know, the basic necessities of rent. Um, and, you know, it's like you, do, you don't get paid for pieces like that. You do it because you just have to. Yeah. And, and then at night I'm working on a magazine that also doesn't pay me. But, you know, I think the magazine will because the response to it has been good um, because it seems to fill... Uh, fuck. Um, I was going to say a hole. <laughs> people like the magazine is what I'm saying, and people people don't feel satisfied when they get everything they want. And there's such a glut of sex and sex imagery, but it doesn't have, it doesn't breed desire for some reason. Um, it's not satisfying to, like, channel flip porn and get off and that's it. It is when you're by yourself, but when you want to talk about what you need with like your partner, you want a different experience. Um, and so many people have told us that like this is a magazine they can give to someone and that the website is something they feel like they can share with other people and it doesn't embarrass them. Uh. People are looking for something that does what their grandfather's magazines did for their grandfathers, but for everyone, um, which sounds a bit grandiose. But I'll admit to being very resistant of the by women for women label that we had before. Right. Because I saw it as being just by women, period. Right. And that that's much more feminist, if we're going to talk about what's feminist, than making something for women, which is very prescriptive and often comes in various shades of pink. Uh with the magazine, I was trying to create a, a world of erotics that wasn't just about the, um, the body and the bodily functions that make up sex and sexual activity, to talk about how language is sexy and images that are not necessarily of bodies are sexy. And we're not there yet. We have not yet created this world. You have not achieved sexy. We haven't. Yeah, we have not achieved. We have not bred desire. Breeding desire. Um, well, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I was, um, I was thinking. I looked at uh, Hugh Hefner's um, Wikipedia page a mm-hmm. few weeks ago, and like, there's this idea behind like the early days of Playboy that um, Playboy sort of, less so than selling sex or selling nudity, mm-hmm. sold this new image of a person that a man could be intellectual mm-hmm. and um, you know read people like no- Norman Mailer and these great writers that right. they had commissioned um, pieces from and also be interested in sex and I'm wondering like if you view adult in the same way as introducing sort of a new like a new type of consumer um, and and how much how, how aware you are of that audience when you're putting it together I don't use the word consumer it has such flat and fluorescent connotations, but it's a great word. Yeah. I mean, I am a constant, constant consumer. I'm never not like drinking something, smoking, eating, reading, all of it constantly, totally cosmophagic. And I hope that that comes out in the magazine as well. Uh, Yeah. I mean, when I said to my friends, 
to answer a question that you asked earlier that I probably never answered, it's I wanted to make an erotic magazine not for men, not for women, not for a particular demographic. It's just if you could make it just not for the person <laughs> this has always been made for, it might end up being something new and even necessary. Uh, you know, the erotic is something that you're not supposed to see. And how do you create that when anything you want, you can go type it into the porn search bar and right. up it comes. Um, and I think it's like you have to get sort of the stray gesture. You have to get this slightly, uh, this you know, the slightly wrong writing. You know what I mean? Writing that isn't perfect, isn't exactly clean, precise, doesn't always make sense. That's some of my favorite writing. It opens up all these possibilities. The idea that you might be reading something that even the author of the story didn't intend for you to read. You know what I mean? Those accents that happen in writing, like when I was talking about before, my sentences sometimes get away from me, and so does my logic, and I find myself surprised by what I'm putting down on the page. But I love that. I leave in a lot of mistakes because I think that they're revealing. And I think it adds up to a, a quickening of the blood that you don't get in perfect conventional long form writing. And I hope to get more of that in the magazine and to get it away from the kinds of like reinvented 70s pinups that we have in the first one. Again, beautiful photos, but I want to get weirder. And I don't know, to do something that feels strange and yet familiar. I talk so much in contradictions, maybe because I'm a Libra, but I think people know what I mean. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I, I, I'm all over it. Well, I, I look forward to, uh, to what, uh, what, what um, the future holds uh, for adult. Um, Thank please, you. Please keep sending them. Uh, I would note that uh, this magazine, we get lots of literary journals in our office, uh, and I went to review this one um, before this interview, and it had mysteriously disappeared, which I think is a good sign. So uh, you must be doing something right. And uh, I really enjoyed it. enjoyed talking to you. You too. Thank you very much for coming in, uh, Sarah Nicole Prickett. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to my guest, Sarah Nicole Prickett. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who has been working so hard with so little time because we are bad at scheduling. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. If you like this show, give us a rating on iTunes. Quick note again, we will be off next week for the 4th of July. We'll put up an old episode that we like, and then we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>